Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a community dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. One of the most exciting ways we do this is at our annual Future Women Leadership Summit. This year's summit was equally thought-provoking and inspirational, offering plenty of practical take-home advice to accelerate your career. If you couldn't make it, don't worry. I'm bringing you the next best thing to being in the room and sharing the highlights from this year's event. Life is messy and sometimes it feels like you can't catch a break. There was a pandemic, there's a divorce, there's an illness. So how do leaders manage to remain calm in the chaos when something inevitably goes wrong? All the time. Recorded live at the Future Women Leadership Summit 2023, in today's episode, you'll hear a panel discussion moderated by myself featuring menopause specialist Dr. Fatima Khan, Rebecca Hagsma, Chief Product Officer at Nine Entertainment, and Stephanie Truthui, founder and CEO of Motherland. These impressive women share their advice on how to lead on those days when it all becomes a bit overwhelming and not lose focus when existing in a very messy reality. This session is a bit of a change of pace, um, one that I know many of you will relate to. Beck, how chaotic is your life right now? Well, just today I'm, I'm sitting here feeling overwhelmed in a positive way about everything I've heard and I keep thinking about all the people I want to be brave enough to go and say hello to and introduce myself to uh, and that's kind of filling my mind but seven months into a new role um, in a new, in a different organisation, um, I was at nine before I was at Telstra. So seven months in learning my way, learning the people I work with, finding out and worrying about all the things I think I'm not doing that I need to do. And then at home, I have a very chaotic, well, I wouldn't call it chaotic, it's busy. It can become chaotic when I uh, allow myself to get overcome with anxiety, which happens. I have five children and three grandchildren. And two of my grandchildren and, I don't know, some of those kids live with me. Um, I can't remember who's who and what's what. So it's a really busy personal life that I have. And it means the most to me out of everything um, in my life is my family and, yeah, and, and how, we're all, how we're all walking along at the moment. I'm going to come back to you on um, some of the tips that you might have for, for holding it all together or whether you just muddle through. Um, but Steph, you're still in the trenches uh, with two very young kids and you're running several businesses as well. I'm interested to know if you feel like becoming a mother has impacted the way you lead and how do you manage the chaos that sometimes comes with that juggle? Becoming a mother has fundamentally changed every fibre of my being. And, you know, I've led teams before, I've been in leadership roles, but I I give you the hot tip, is leading a team that consists of a sassy four-year-old and a fiery two-year-old is by far the toughest gig I've ever had. But, you know, I spent a lot of time resenting some of the challenges of motherhood and I was, I guess, leading with my head and not my heart. And, you know, fundamentally the struggles I've had with my mental health, I'm really open about the fact I, I struggle with postnatal depression. I fell in love with a farmer. I used to be a TV reporter. I worked for Nine actually. So life has changed and I call myself a farmer now, but that change rocked my world. Um, and, you know, because of that change and because of the tough times, Motherland was born and Motherland and my babies have given me three important things as a leader, um, and that is empathy, authenticity, and vulnerability. And motherhood has softened 
a big sort of hardened part of me that I carried in workplaces and I've learned to embrace that rawness and that softness. As for managing the chaos, um, Helen, I don't think I'm managing chaos. I think it's managing me. But, you know, what I have learned and I think everyone in this room should learn is we need to be more selfish. I think as women, we are fed this idea that self-sacrifice is where we need to be in life, that the more we give to others, the more we give to our children, our partners, that we're elevated on this pedestal like we're the perfect mother or the perfect woman. And I fell into that cycle really badly and I'm trying to unlearn like a lot of those behaviours and put myself first. And when it is chaos, I try and make decisions with work If it's not going to move the dial in 12 months, if it's not going to matter in 12 months, can I let it go? And that's sort of the phase of life I'm in at the moment. Talk to me a bit about putting yourself first. What does that mean in a practical sense? In a practical sense, it's saying no to things. I've actually like recently, and it's really awkward. I'm a people pleaser. I want everyone to be happy. I want everyone to like me. Not everyone does and I'm, that's okay. But saying no to work things is really important or saying not right now. You know, I, there's nothing more overwhelming and, and the mental load and the mother load for any mums in the room will agree is, is real. Like there's a disproportionate amount of work um, and emotions that go into what women do at home and at work than men and that needs to change. But putting yourself first, it sounds obvious. It might be 10 minutes a day. For me, I get triggered like an email pops up and I feel the need to, you know, invest in that straight away. But it's letting go of those things and and realising that no one is going to save you. And I think that's been the biggest lesson of my life is that I spent so long playing victim when things went wrong at work, when things went wrong at home, waiting for something to change. Nothing was ever going to change. No one, it's no one's responsibility to save you. And so putting myself first actually ended up me putting my family first because if the leadership, you know, a fish rots from the head down, if a leader is struggling, if a leader is putting everyone but themselves first, eventually the team is going to crumble. And for me, that's my family as well. So it's been a big learning curve. Beck, do you relate to some of that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I I haven't found a great way of putting myself first and I find, um, you use the word victim there, I find that I do go into a real victim state when I'm not when I'm not prioritising myself uh, and then I blame everyone else for it. Really good at that. My husband um, is definitely to blame for many things. Um, he's not. Um, he's, he's got a really simple outlook where he's like, but why don't you just do that? And I don't know why I tie myself up in knots and I, I don't just do things and make those decisions. But definitely as life has become busier, although it's always been pretty busy, I, you know, my, my daughter will often say to me, Mum, do you want to walk the kids to childcare today? And of course I want to walk the kids to childcare with the dog. Like I want to do that every day, but I also want to do, I, I love what I do for a job and I'm proud of the role that I'm going to be able to play in the organisation that I work for and the things that my team and I are going to be able to achieve. And so what's the answer to that question? Do you want to walk the kids to childcare? It's yes, but I also, actually I do want to go to work and, I, and I'm going to go to work and I'm just going to not feel bad about not walking the kids to childcare and also missing those magic moments that, you know, a four-year-old and a two-year-old can say on the way to childcare walking the dog, (laughs) which are always miraculous. But, like, there's a balance and a choice and then owning the choice. What about this busyness thing? Um, In COVID, we all talked a lot and I particularly enjoyed the concept of actually not saying I was busy anymore. How do we get here and can we un? undo or are we just stuck in busy, in a culture of busy? Uh, I just, I say I'm busy because I have a busy life. Like there's no other way to describe 
that many people in your house and a pretty big job. And You're the wrong person to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think we just need to question what is it, what are we trying to say, what do we mean? And I've tried to describe it in a different way, but I do have a busy life. And um, there's lots of people that I work with as well who, you know, I really enjoy connecting with and um, working with. And so that means that the schedule's pretty full. But I, I, and I, I guess, um, you know, that, that, is, that is a busy life, but I don't see it as a negative. Fatima, do you have a busy life or a chaotic life? Um, I think we all do. So, but it's about, I think, finding purpose is what sometimes help us navigate those busy, chaotic times. I think we were, we're in that sandwich generation where we were told we could have it all, especially when I was being raised. It was like, yep, you can have the full-time job, have the kids, have the career, and do the washing and everything else. And I think it's about stepping back and saying, do I want it all? And being really vicious with your prioritization and saying, actually, I can let this one go and not feel guilty about it. So if you miss a school pickup or drop up, that's okay. But I think the driving force has to be finding what is that's driving you. The driving force has to be purpose and passion. And I think if you've got something to look forward to, that could be family, but it doesn't have to be family. It could be something in your job, your career, community, anything that's driving your daily kind of existence. I think that's what helps with the chaos and the busyness, just allowing you to prioritise and sift through what's important. Otherwise, I think we kind of just feel like we've got this big sack of, all the worries, physical, mental load carrying with us. It's actually just letting go of the things that don't serve us. And that's when I find a lot of the women, when they're navigating the perimenopause and menopause, and it's quite interesting, the 20s and 30s are very different from your 40s. But most certainly when you hit 50, it's very different. It's about looking inwards and kind of writing your own manual, I say, of what is it that's important to you, but letting go of the people-pleasing, letting go of all the kind of the expectations from society, and really looking inwards and saying, what is it that I want, and living life on your own terms? Because most women will live 30 to 40 years post-menopause. So it's going back to, again, finding what is it that we want, rather than being given a job role that we've kind of accumulated from our 20s, 30s, and then kind of haven't really got rid of what's adding to that extra busyness or burden. And is that um, a core part of your work, is helping women through that phase understand that this is a time to take stock and to make those decisions? Yes, obviously my job is more medical, so supporting them in a medical way um, on this journey, but a lot of that is coaching. And a lot of that is, is letting go, delegating, but also there's a lot of guilt so a lot of the women say they feel guilty asking for help or they feel guilty not doing certain things. So it's, I think, changing mindset. But also when it comes to perimenopause and menopause, and a lot of my uh, women that I see will be in the peak of their professional careers. And so if we are to address the leadership gender gap, we've got to really look at what's happening in a woman's physical and emotional well-being that's kind of causing her to not go forward and take those leadership roles. And I frequently see a lot of executives or even CEOs who've taken the backseat of not taking those promotions because, number one, there's a huge lack of awareness and lack of education. And on top of that, there's a lack of support. And even if that's amongst, just not the community in the workplace, but even amongst healthcare professionals, because we've had perimenopause and menopause specifically has been underfunded and under-researched for decades. And there's a whole new 
now that's another topic about the gender bias in healthcare. So I think my work mainly surrounds around supporting these women who will hit 14, 15, suddenly they've got the five kids, they've got the three grandchildren, and they've got these high-powered jobs, but they suddenly can't do them. And, and it's because we think menopause is just about hot flushes. Don't that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think we think menopause is just hot flushes and night sweats, but it's not. I mean, 90% of the symptoms start in the brain and they start with anxiety and depression and brain fog and you feel like you've got dementia. And I think, I think it's important to recognize those symptoms and then offer them support because we're losing a huge, very experienced workforce that the economy can't afford to lose. And we've had a recent document come out from the Australian Institute of Superannuation saying that we're losing 17 billion in annual earnings and superannuation because of losing women to an early retirement, essentially. And they're women between 45 and 55. From 30 to 40% will retire under the age of 55. If you are to solve any of the gender equality, I guess, issues, we've got to look at what is affecting the woman, not just in the workplace, but in her life. And it's important we recognize the changes that a woman experiences in her mental health and psychological health during the perimenopause and menopause, so we can support them and we can retain this very highly experienced and wise workforce. We've had a conversation at FW about when we train men around um, being better leaders of gender equal teams, whether we can actually have this conversation with men. And I'll be super candid, I, I took the view that men were not ready for this chat yet. Um, we'll get there, but they're not ready for it. Steph, Beck, either of you got anything to add to this conversation? Um, I'm so happy to be sitting here having this conversation because I have um, not been able to have it at work and I'm there's a few people here who I've worked with in the past and I'm usually not backwards and coming forwards, but that's one area for some reason. I've, I've just kind of gone, oh, I'm really tired and waiting for someone to sort of lead into the conversation and, you know, young women getting their periods. My kids, I have four daughters, and my son always, he, he misunderstood the first child um, when she got it and thought it was a pyramid. Uh, and then we, we, we celebrated everyone's pyramid when that moment came for them. And we had a big celebration in our family. And for so, so, so we are open. We, we like, you know, we, we discuss things. We work through with conversation. We listen to each other. But this is one area that is just not, I don't know, it's just, uh, it, it's an area that is not comfortable yet to have a discussion about, but it's so great to hear it. And I keep looking around the room and thinking about some people who aren't there yet and, you know, some men in this audience too that I'd love to understand how comfortable or uncomfortable this is because it would be great if we can have it a little bit more. What about your rural audience? Yeah, I mean, I have been thrown into a very male-dominated industry, um, the farming industry. It was only not that long ago that women were only allowed to call themselves a farmer as an occupation. And it is incredibly archaic, our thinking on the land. When you talk about women's issues, things like mental health, there is still that stereotypical tough bloke, the farmer that you see on the news and, and all that still exists. And I've felt it firsthand. So within our home, I'm very lucky that my husband is a very emotionally connected bloke, um, but I certainly come across day to day, I speak to women who are their biggest struggles at home are the fact that they don't have that teammate. They don't have that someone that they can be open and vulnerable with. And if you can't do that with your teammate, how on earth are you going to raise the next generation of women and men um, to be talking about these things, to embrace these things and to not have any shame surrounding these things? 
Steph, your organisation does really lean into not so much chaos, but the loneliness and the isolation piece. And you have touched on it. I just want to ask you in a bit more detail about how you personally took control of your postnatal depression and how you actually found uh, your way through that darkness. For me, you know, motherhood, I I lost my sense of self and I'd been pulled out of the city, moved to the middle of nowhere and I didn't know who I was anymore Um, and I was playing victim and I was doing that very successfully for a couple of months, like cracking job. I give it five, five, five stars how I, you know, fulfilled that role and I had this moment and I talked to you about it, Helen, but we talked about a village today and I had this moment when I thought, well, everyone keeps telling me it takes a village to raise a child where the hell is mine? And so that's the moment where my business baby was born. And where I'm going with this is I feel like we are so scared of the hard stuff. There are people in this room, I know for a fact, who are in pain, who are struggling, who are grieving. There's a lot of us going through some stuff at the moment. And I think we always shy away from, I guess, our own rawness. Um, And for me, I actually had to move towards it because that's where the innovation was. That's where the problem solving was. I did a simple Instagram poll a year after I started the Motherland podcast and found that over 50% of women in this country who live in rural areas don't have access to a mother's group, which was extraordinary to me because here I was with two under two, with no mother's group, living on a farm thinking, how the hell has no one invented this before? Why doesn't this exist? And so I created Motherland Village, which is Australia first online rural mothers group program. Um, And so the reason why I'm here today with you, Helen, is because I've struggled, is because I've been vulnerable, is because I have come from a very dark place when I thought I had blown up my life, when the reality was, is it was leading me to it all just beginning. So I'm really passionate about moving towards that and not moving away from that, you know, vulnerability. And thank you for all the work you do do. Um, It has been incredible what the work you've done. Let's talk about being a people pleaser. Beck, I assume we've all been people pleasers, right? We all start out and probably socialised to be people pleasers as small people. Have you come to terms with that? I, I won't presume to, to put this on the room, but I imagine there's quite a few of us, me included, who uh, likes to think that I don't care, but I, I do deeply care. It's, it's really difficult. Um, it's really difficult not to care, uh, especially when you're trying your hardest and maybe the clarity of what you're trying to do hasn't come across and you think you're being misread or, I don't know, is that being a victim? <laughs> it could be a bit of both. Fatima, what about you? I mean, if you've been talking about menopause, you've probably had some pretty uncomfortable moments. So you're probably like, oh, I'm, I'm used to uncomfortable moments and I don't care. Yeah, I guess it goes back to probably just sharing a personal story. There women, generally speaking, are reproductive, doing reproductive phases are vulnerable to changes in their mental health. And so I've probably someone who've experienced that throughout my life with postnatal depression and an early perimenopause. And I guess it's about making sure those women, similarly women aren't experiencing those difficulties that I did. But I think it's more important because if we are having a huge void in our society with women are kind of dropping off the leadership ladder, and then who is going to, in the bigger picture, be making those big decisions? And if you want change to really happen... We've got to change who's making those decisions because whoever's been making those so far haven't been doing a great job. So 
I guess what was your question now? <laughs> I forgot. It was about I being... I to do a tangent. No, no, no. And you're welcome to do tangents on this stage. <laughs> um, no, I was asking about being a people pleaser. Oh, because when you, if you've got a chaotic life and you're trying to be a people pleaser, yeah. like that's, oh. a, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Well, I think number one, evolutionary, we're biologically wired as humans for connection. And part of seeking that connection in every aspect of our life, relationships, workplace, society is we want people to like us and therefore we care and we'll do anything to please them because we want that connection. And more so now with modern life where we're so disconnected from our family or network that we've grown up with, we're in new places, new workplaces, new cities. We kind of don't necessarily have those boundaries because you have to let those boundaries down so you can please people, so you can be accepted. So it's part of it wanting to be accepted wanting a sense of belonging and a sense of connection, which is evolutionary and biologically wide, but also we live in modern times where we don't necessarily have the same sum of connection that we seek. So what strategies do you employ then? I'd say it's a lot easier when you hit 45 and 50. Yeah. You genuinely don't care what people think. <laughs> and I think that's also because, I think there's two things to it. So number one, there's two different aspects of culture. So as women get older and mature and become wiser. In Western culture, they seem to be irrelevant, invisible. And that's why menopause has been such a stigmatized taboo subject. And it, it was actually a derogatory term where they would say, you're off the shelf. We use it in economy to say they're having a menopausal moment. And so actually that's changed now with Zen Z and uh, all these celebrities making themselves more vocal and saying, hang on, I'm not old, I'm not irrelevant, I, I'm, I matter. But the second point to it is, I think you're not afraid. There's this courage that comes from when you become mature and older and wiser. As far as when you're in your 20s and 30s, they're confident, but they don't necessarily have the wisdom. And I think as we get more mature, we become wiser and become more courageous and brave and, and don't actually care about necessarily being the loudest voice in the room but it's about satisfying our own internal needs, but also what really matters. And going back to that, kind of tuning into what really matters to me and the people around me and what's important to me. And so I think you kind of just let go and don't care because you can't please everyone. But also you've probably established enough connections along the way where you feel you're accepted and are connected to a community that accepts you just the way you are. Um, I want to just divide a little bit into two groups. Like there'll be a bunch of women in the room that are in their 20s and 30s who are going, what about now when things are, you know, I'm still in the, in the depths, in the, at the height of my people pleasing. And then there's, as you say, the 45 to 55-year-old group and there's a bunch, as I said, about Jobs Academy members who have raised kids 2, 5, 10 and, a, and a thinking about the pathway back to work and that not caring Let's take the 20-year-olds. Steph, I'm going to go to you. What advice yes, do you I, have? I'm in my 20s. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> what advice have you got to, to them about managing those expectations on yourself? Very easy to dish it, isn't it? Very hard to take it. I could have used this advice when I was in my 20s. But for me, when it comes to people-pleasing, I have spent my, a lot of my career chasing promotions, trying to be validated by work, Certainly through my role in media, I felt that I was constantly chasing the next thing, chasing the next thing and succeeding on paper. But a mentor of mine, she said this to me after I won the Rural Women's Award and it's stuck with me and it's something that I have learned so much from is she said, you've got everyone's attention now, what are you going to do with it? And I wish that I had spent more time focusing on 
the change I could create than just ticking boxes, going places, getting promotions, having the glamorous TV job, whatever it was, and more time on actually moving the dial. And so that's something I carry with me now as a 33-year-old. And yeah, I wish I kind of learnt that. But I mean, look, as a 20-something-year-old, you're never going to learn it until you live it. That's just life. So everything's good in hindsight, right? Absolutely. Beck, what um, what do you see? I mean, you've got daughters that are in this space. I do. Uh, I just, I I guess, and I work with some incredible women in their 20s and early 30s. Uh, And I think, uh, you know, embrace a diversity of colleagues and friends and learn from all of that diversity in age as well as gender, as well as different backgrounds. And I think before you know it, I I don't know how I'm 53 and I've got all these kids and grandkids. The years have just like flown by. I went to Sting the other night and everyone looked like me and I was not a daggy dancer. Um, I was I was I was probably the only person there in the ten thousand going. Am I actually still th- this age? <laughs> and uh, why? What? Wh- what's happened? It was just like this trip back. But I think that diversity of you know I love speaking to um, my colleagues and my girl, my my daughters and my son who are all in their twenties and. Um, and just uh, learning from them, but also I love it when there's an acknowledgement that we're learning from each other and the conversation is worthwhile. Yeah, I would also call out the um, Future Women team. There's a lot of young women in the FW team and they teach us something every day um, and the quality uh, and the thinking of young women is exceptional. But I'm going to give you the job of the next um, age bracket and ask a medical opinion. What advice have you got for women today in their 44 to... 74. <laughs> well, I just didn't want to exclude anyone. Well, if you look at the average life expectancy of a woman in Australia, it's 84.5. And there's a lot of education, awareness and support around puberty, which is one reproductive stage. Then you've got fertility when they get pregnant. But there's zero education at school level, at every kind of level about the perimenopause and menopause, which is probably the one we need to be most probably supported through because you've got full-time careers, three kids under 15 and a high-powered job. So how do we navigate those while transitioning through this phase, which is a natural phase, but has impact on our physical, emotional and psychological health? So I think first goes to educating yourself. And there's so much awareness now. Perimenopause is like a cool word now. So, which is good because it means it, with anything when you're experiencing in isolation, that's where shame comes from. So just us sitting here to get today and talking about it kind of lifts that drape off and say, oh, this is something I can talk about and, 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 and not be ashamed of because that creates itself more problems for your mental health. So I think it's education. We probably need to introduce it on a school level. So they learn about fertility, they learn about sexual health, but they don't, they don't learn about end of reproductive life, which is really the true beginning of life for most women. And you saw these wonderful panel this morning in their 60s who are really confident, really accomplished. So I think it's just saying this is a bit of a turbulent roller coaster phase. We always say it's the hormones are fluctuating. But post-menopause is the best time ever because the kids are older, you can do what you want to do, and actually people listen to you, but you just got to make it through those two decades. So, (laughs) actually it's just a decade. 
But it's, it's the same thing, how you've got support now. Steph's doing a great job. There's a lot more awareness and support for perimenopause and menopause. There's lots of online groups. There's lots of support on, on the internet and generally uh, in person as well. So education, knowing the signs, and then seeking help and not sitting at home thinking, I'm the only one going through this. Actually, half of the world's population will go through this. And so not addressing it openly actually is a disadvantage to not just men, women, economy and the healthcare system, but generally as a world altogether because we're losing so much of this 50% of the world's perspective by then not being able to get to that point where they are involved in making decisions and making real change, which really matters. And we need that. I'm just going to go off um, on a tangent for a bit and ask you, are we behind in this discussion? So having moved here from the UK where I did my menopause training... We are behind about four or five years, but that's always the case. But I would say that women in leadership here are far more empowered than a lot of women that I've seen in Europe because I think they're a bit more conventional in their approach to gender roles. As far as I think in Australia, women are very, they're more open and they're courageous and they don't shy away from elevating voices of vulnerable women. And so I think although we're behind, but actually we're catching up with the data. In the last six months, there's a lot of noise and there's a parliamentary group meeting happening, I think, this week, where they're talking about what we can do to support women in the workplace and in society and communities so we can retain this workforce. But also we can't afford for this cohort of women to have chronic illnesses that are linked with the transition. So we know women, I mean, this will become a bit of a medical talk, but women, main cause of women, death for women, um, women in Australia die, main cause is Alzheimer's dementia, followed by heart disease. And the main cause of disability is osteoporosis. And so these don't happen under the age of 50. So we know that there's some specific role of estrogen and in women's health that generally have been due to misogyny and patriarchy and also having blind spots because when I was training, all my professors and trainers were men. So why would they have... It's not even... I think we sometimes blame everything on uh, patriarchy and misogyny, but actually part of it is having blind spots. Why would they be researching this topic? It's completely irrelevant to them. So, well, actually, it's more relevant to them than the woman itself, but actually that's what they thought. So going back into... We need to support women. It's, a, it's an economic decision, but it's also a healthcare decision. And with an ageing population in Australia, we can't afford to have... The healthcare, essentially, we need to be more effective in managing the chronic disease burden. And so for women, to the missing link is talking about menopause. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to get back to the topic. <laughs> uh, it is all related, I, I assure you. Final observations from all three of you. Um, the topic is menopause and no. Um, the topic is um, leading when there's chaos in your life more broadly and you've got to juggle. It's essentially the juggle. Like how do we do the juggle? Interested to hear from all three of you on the things that are really important to you to do um, daily or weekly that keep you sane and keep your life on track. Steph. For me, this sounds really annoying for people who don't like to get up early, but I started getting up a little bit before the kids. I started even just 15 minutes and then half an hour, and now my husband and I both get up about 45 minutes before the kids wake up because it's the only time that I get to myself in the day and that time is sacred and I can just sit there and have a coffee and just be. That's been really important for my mental health. But for me, my closing kind of statement on this chaos and, and you know, overwhelm 
is lots of things were happening in my life that were chaotic and really difficult. Not just my move to the farm. I had a miscarriage that nearly broke me. Last year, we had our toughest season on the farm. It was the most horrific winter. It also nearly broke us as a family unit. And, you know, what I learned from that was I couldn't understand why I had everything bottled up. And I realised it was this. It's that resilience, thank God Hugh's not here, is bullshit. Because (laughs) resilience... I guess it creates this pressure and this expectation that just because I'm a farmer, just because, you know, we live on the land and we've gone through like floods or drought, that I should just put up and shut up, cop it and bounce back magically better than before. Motherhood, I didn't bounce back after motherhood emotionally or physically. So for me, resilience is a a very dangerous word and part of my self-care is trying to unlearn some of that. And I think as leaders, we also feel the pressure to be resilient, to remain calm when it's chaotic. And we're not robots. And I think if you're not leading with heart, then you're all head and that's a very dangerous place to be. So for me, the act of being not resilient and to talk about my struggles have fundamentally changed me as a mother, as a partner and as a businesswoman. That deserves a round of applause. Beck Hagsman, what are, the, what are the tips and tricks that you employ on a daily basis to keep your show on the road? I, I connect with a lot of, a lot of what you just said, um, Steph. I believe that for me, when things aren't, aren't uh, particularly going along in the organised way that my life dictates, I find it helpful to lead, um, I, I wouldn't call it by being vulnerable, but it's just by being honest. So if i am had a particularly bad week, my husband's going through a little bit of a health crisis at the moment, and sometimes it does get a little bit too much, I uh, make sure my team knows that um, I am a bit distracted and there's, there's things going on that might impact me and I might not be as present as normally. So I believe in sharing openly. I do also believe in um, in organisation. So, you know, I do have a number of different chats on different platforms where we come together as a family, for instance, and connect over things that are important to us and uh, we communicate frequently and I bring that to work as well. I believe that um, communication is pretty key and clarity of that communication both in expectations but in a good way so that we can, you know, move together, um, move forward together, but also in an open way and in a whole way. So for me, um, I've always brought my whole self to work um, and I've, you know, juggled with the idea of separating the two um, over the years, but I've never been successful at that. So I've just kept going. And so, so I do think that openness, you know, debating and discussing things that are relevant or might be impacting us in a, in a week, and it might be family, but it might also be societal. Like there are a lot of things at the moment um, that people care about, and I think it's important to share. And having that relationship and that trust is really important to get us through whatever we might be facing into, whether it's chaotic or not at work or pressure um, and at home. And so open communication, caring about each other and about what's going on for people and a little smidge of organisation. I have a calendar on the fridge. If it's not written on the calendar, it doesn't happen in our house. Last word. Well, I was going to say friends and family, but I had to just rely on some ice cream and crying. <laughs> uh, having moved here four years ago and, and had a year of um, moving to Melbourne with no friends, family or connections. It was my husband's idea, but anyway, we'll talk about it another time. But um, And then we had this two years of lockdown where you lose those connections. So, you know, there will be times where you won't have friends and family, Find something that helps you. It could be a walk. It could be eating ice cream. And sometimes a good old cry is a good way to release 
those endorphins that are stuck in your body. But I think on a more medical level, I just wanted to say it's important to recognize that your emotional and your physical resilience would alter as you enter that chaotic phase of your life in your 40s. And so it's about doing things differently. What served you in your 30s and 20s, the way you used to eat, exercise, sleep and do things. You've got to do that life audit or a decade audit and change it because our emotional and physical resilience does evolve and change. Uh, and the more we have on our plate, it, it kind of challenges that a bit more. So it's good to kind of unlearn what you did in the last decade and kind of adapt new ways of learning and don't be scared to do that. Fantastic. Fatima, Rebecca Hagsma, Steph Dathuri, thank you so much for joining us. Big round of applause. That was brilliant. Thank you all. Thanks again to our panellists, Dr Fatima Khan, Rebecca Hagsma and Stephanie Trithui. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. <laughs>